0: Um, So, starting from 1 Timothy 2. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works as is proper for women who profess to worship God. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man, instead, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. Now we'll flick over to Romans chapter 16, starting from verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe who is a servant of the church of Cenchreae so you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and and assist her in whatever matter she may require your help for indeed she may she's been a benefactor of many and of me also give my greetings to Prisca and Aquila my co-workers in Christ Jesus who risk their own necks for my life but not only do I thank them but also, so do, all the, so do all the Gentile churches. Greet also the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend, Aponitis, who was, who was the first convert to the church from Asia. Greet Mary, who has also worked very hard for you.
1: Thank you, Lauren. Well, good evening, welcome to TAC, especially if you're new here tonight, uh, it's great to have you and uh, oof, what a passage, right? Um, now, I've, not, I've sought to not shy away from uh, difficult passages in my preaching through chunks of Scripture. Um, I see that as part of, you know, preaching the full counsel of God and it's, um, it's part of my responsibility and privilege as the lead pastor here to walk us through um, hard passages but this one... This one I've chosen to do, um, and uh, so this one's on me, uh, you can thank me for that. Uh, why, why have I done that? Uh, no, I'm not a masochist. Um, uh, firstly, the first reason, uh, we have uh, a full spectrum of views of uh, women in ministry at TAC, and uh, as we continue to grow uh, and as people come to our church from a wide variety of experiences, um, you know, one of the questions that I not infrequently get asked is where our church stands on women preaching. Uh, now, we don't have a church-wide, work-through position apart from what has been the practice for the last uh, couple of decades, so I'd like to open up a conversation on this. Uh, two, I would like to lead our church through such a conversation that will probably take us, you know, the best part of a year, I presume, because uh, I don't want to do it in a rush or anxiously, um, but to be listening to each other with God's words open uh, and, and, and continue to build on the richness that we already have here at TAC of men and women as co-workers in the Kingdom. Now, as a third little caveat, uh, why am I preaching on this at this time? Uh, Particularly with sort of Nat starting soon, what am I doing there? Well, I thought I'd light a fire under this before she comes. No, no, Um, um, uh, her role is not contingent on this sermon. Um, she will join the conversation as you know. As we all talk about this uh, in time, uh, I'm not particularly rushed about that, and uh, you know, she'll just in the mix. I've shared with her my thoughts and sermon, uh, and uh, she's not particularly anxious about it, and uh, looks forward to joining us soon. Now, with all those caveats in mind, maybe I've pricked your interest. Where am I going with all this? Uh, let me give you my five-point sermon. Here we go. Uh, firstly, men and women as complementary co-workers in the kingdom. I'm going to start in Genesis 1. Uh, I'm going to skip a few pages in between. Land in Jesus, uh, that will be a thing. Uh, two, I want to explore Paul's view of women and teaching, particularly in 1 Timothy 2. So we're going to spend a bit of time in those uh, challenging verses. Uh, three, Um, reading 1 Timothy 2 in the story of Scripture. I want to talk about hermeneutics, that kind of fancy word for how do we read Scripture and interpret it, uh, as well as uh, how do we do systematic theology, that that is, how do we we join passages together to think about a particular topic? Uh, And fourthly, I want to share a few expressions and practices uh, that could come from these texts uh, under the banner of generous complementarianism. Uh, And then fifthly, release us to have generous conversations because uh, at the end of this, I'm not leading kind of a heavy-handed process to drive a particular outcome, Uh, I think in all humility you will hear me say tonight, uh, I might be wrong on some of these things. Uh, And as we open up God's Word together um, and as we listen to each other, uh, I trust, and it's actually a privilege to be able to trust our church, to have mature, humble, Bible-open conversations about these matters. Uh, now, I've, uh, I've clocked this sermon at about 35 minutes, so strap in. Um, it, you know, it, it, this is a topic that if you want to open, you might as well do a good job of it. I guess you can be the judge of that. Uh, I will open up Q&A at the end, and I'm actually encouraging people to use the QR codes for that tonight, uh, partly because... Um, you know it, it will give sort of a safe place for the expression of a variety of views to come forward but also there's no way i'm going to be able to get to all the questions that come out of tonight and so it helps me keep track of those questions i'll bundle them up uh with this uh with this talk and send that more widely uh in time does that sound okay excellent good on you um let me let me pray actually as i as i kick into this uh father we thank you for your word uh, help me speak clearly, uh, that we might see Jesus more clearly, and on these secondary issues, uh, would you help us to not get distracted uh, in, uh, in our focus on Jesus, but let us also work at how we best honour you in the way we organise ourselves, organize ourselves in the life of the Church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so let's begin with uh, men and women as complementary co-workers in the kingdom. Now at the pinnacle of the creation account is, uh, cre- uh, is God creating humanity, uh, in the Hebrew, Adam. So not just kind of Adam as we think of, you know, the dude Adam, but actually humanity, Adam, mankind. And he creates them male and female. Uh, they... Are made to rule uh, over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and all that stuff and and in two ways there we're seeing how uh, the kind of uh, humanity as male and female uh, are created in God's image to to rule under God's rule, uh, to be entrusted with stewarding the creation Uh, but also in the way that they relate to each other as we image God who is relationship within Himself, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Uh, Now, man is made uh, from the dirt, Uh, in the Hebrew, adamah. And so there's this kind of, you know, this play on kind of these words of adam, made from adamah. Uh, And as uh, God makes Adam particularly from the dirt, uh, God notes that it is not good for man to be alone and makes a woman uh, out of Adam as a helper. Now that language of helper is not particularly hierarchical, Uh, God is described as our helper. And so we can see it just as a partner uh, in being co-workers in God's kingdom. So there we have uh, man and uh, woman, Adam and Eve, uh, made in unity to, uh, to, to rule under God, uh, to have a relationship with each other, and so to express what it means to be made in the image of God. And yet there's also uh, an order, um, that is that man was created first, Adam was created first, and out of Adam Eve was created, and also that God gave Adam the instructions of, you may enjoy all of this, but do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of life uh, and of um, uh, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. Now, as we know, it goes pretty pear-shaped pretty quickly. So, uh, as Paul describes in 1 Timothy 2, it unfolds rapidly from there. So, Genesis 3.6 says this, that uh, as Satan tempts the woman, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So, she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her and ate it too. Now, there's no comments in here about the woman being more gullible uh, or, or weaker or less educated or anything like that. They both sinned. So, so in kind of their uh, shared humanity and but also their, their difference, uh, Adam and Eve sinned differently. So for Eve, instead of trusting God's good words that she would have heard through Adam, she listened to the serpent and was led into sin and led her husband into sin. Uh, Adam stood by and let Eve lead them both into sin and in full knowledge, since God told him, he disobeyed God himself. And the relationship with God humanity and the world was fractured in God's judgment upon them. As we read in Genesis 3, the consequences were that childbirth would be more painful, a wife's desire would be for her husband and he would rule over her and that man's labor and working would be more painful uh, and life would be toilsome until they return to the dust they were created from bit of a bleak picture and yet we see also God's mercy to them as he leads them uh, and kind of bless and kind of creates, you know, clothing for them uh, and even ultimately gives them the law and kind of guides them and guards them towards ultimately Jesus. Uh, But between Genesis 3 and Jesus, uh, the pattern of Old Testament leadership is one particularly of patriarchy. Uh, now, that word can be a triggering word uh, for us today, but it, it, there's no denying the historical account here that, that predominantly the leadership uh, amongst priests and in the home was male-led. Now, within that kind of overall arc, uh, there is a splattering of prominent women uh, in leadership, including Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron, who leads Israel in worship, uh, Queen Esther... The prophet Holder, um, who King Josiah, Josiah sought after to understand what the book of the law was about, that he found while cleaning up. Now, a notable expression of the new covenant humanity from within the Old Testament frame is Joel chapter 2, where this is what God says through Joel. After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity, and then your sons and your daughters will prophesy... Your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, Now in that we see uh, men and women being blessed by the Spirit and speaking words of truth and encouragement to one another and to others. Uh, And that is a wonderful picture from within the Old Testament of where things are headed in the New Covenant. And as Jesus brings in the new covenant, uh, he creates a new humanity through the power of the Spirit. Now, his ministry was one of consistently uh, subverting power structures, whether they were uh, kind of religious or political or cultural or social. He didn't come to lead a social justice revolution, he's not kind of like arms raised, uh, you know, against the government, But, but he does demonstrate God's power and glory through being a servant. He's playing a totally different rule book than anything else anyone else has seen and it certainly grabs people's attention. Yes, he chose 12 male disciples, uh, kind of like uh, looking back to the 12 tribes of Israel, a- and yet he also invites Mary to sit at his feet as a disciple while Martha kind of does the womanly things expected in the home and even complains that, you know, Jesus send Mary back so she can do what she's supposed to, right, but Jesus says no, uh, she has chosen well. He crossed cultural norms to minister to a Samaritan woman at the well, as we read about that in John, chapter 4. But most notably, He appeared first to women after the resurrection, while the disciples hid, and those women were the first to proclaim the good news of the resurrection. Now, given a woman's testimony wasn't admissible in court in that day, Jesus either didn't think hard enough about His PR campaign, or, or, or it was an accident and a real blight on the Gospel that was included, or he chose to do it that way. And we could say more, uh, especially about women in the early church but that's enough of a frame to help us move to our central text of 1 Timothy 2. Uh, that is, we've seen how God created humanity as male and female, there is a unity in that, uh, in that binary uh, and yet also there is an orderliness to man being created first uh, and being given the instruction. We see the disordered nature of that in the, through the sinning and through the fall, Uh, The Old Testament largely uh, led through patriarchy and there's glimpses of women in leadership, uh, especially in Joel Joel 2, looking over the horizon to the New Covenant, where Jesus both affirms the created order and subverts power structures. He certainly doesn't subscribe to a simple patriarchal model. Okay, so uh, let's get into 1 Timothy 2. Now Paul, the Apostle, is writing to Timothy in Ephesus, uh, Timothy being a church leader, uh, Paul being the Apostle um, who is uh, teaching on, uh, on, on matters of the gospel. And he, um, his first order of business is to ask Timothy to remain in Ephesus so that he could instruct certain people not to teach false doctrines or pay attention to myths or endless genealogies. Endless genealogies must have been a thing. Paul knows, as we read in chapter 4, that there are going to be some that depart the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the hypocrisy of lies and whose consciences are seared. Uh, he makes special note here to say, uh, they forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude. So there's false doctrine in play and in the mix of that is a rejection of the creational goodness of unity in diversity as expressed in marriage between a man and a woman. As we get to chapter 2, He begins by speaking about how all are called to pray, for God wants all to be saved and there is one mediator for all, Jesus. That's kind of what we would call uh, kind of a, um, you know, primary doctrine. Uh, As we think about some of the matters we're discussing tonight, these are secondary issues. Let's make sure we keep the main thing the main thing. There is one mediator and one saviour and His name is Jesus and all are able to come to Him in faith because of His grace. Now uh, Paul notes that in verse seven, I was appointed a herald, an apostle. I'm telling the truth; he says I'm not lying, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. And that's important, right? Because uh, you know that the church in Ephesus uh, couldn't just go to the local Kurong and buy a copy of the New Testament scriptures that didn't exist. And so it was really important that there was an apostolic uh, teaching to hand down and guard the good deposit. That was the Gospel and the New Testament. Now, he moves into there to talk about uh, particular how we organise ourselves within the household of God as men and women. He says, men, lift up hands to pray without anger. Now, it's worth noting that not all men are angry and not every men's talk needs to be about anger. And yet, also testosterone is a thing. Uh, Similarly, he says to women, clothe yourselves with good works rather than immodest dress. And again, women aren't inherently needing to be told what to wear and yet sexual objectification is a thing, it has been throughout history and continues to be. Now, these are not claims about men and women, they are instructions for them and there's references in this letter and elsewhere that suggest such behaviours and attitudes need to be addressed and Paul does so. Now, as we um, slow down here to look at some of the particular verses in view, let me bring it onto the screen verse 11. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. Now, firstly, we ought to see this as a positive encouragement. Let me start with a positive, I'm an optimist. Um, uh, we should saw this as a positive encouragement for women to learn. It's actually the only explicit imperative in the text, to learn. And like Mary at the feet of Jesus, who chose well Uh, Women are encouraged to enter into the household of God and to learn, and that's a good thing. Uh, The King James Version uh, translates uh, learning quietly with silence, not really helpful. This is not a muzzling of women that they cannot speak. Uh, and, And we can only sort of look at 1 Corinthians 11, for example, to find that Paul encourages men and women to pray and to prophesy in the church. That is, that their voice ought to be heard. So it's not a silencing of women. Uh, prophesying, which we will t- touch on a couple of times throughout this, uh, very different in the New Testament than the Old Testament. The Old Testament was pointing forward to future events, particularly uh, pointing towards Christ, and it was a really big thing for you to stand in front of God's people and say, the Lord says, and then speak about the future. In fact, there was big consequences if the prophets got it wrong. In the New Testament, God's already given us his full revelation and it's about pointing back to Jesus and providing spiritual words from God as a way of encouraging and edifying God's people. Uh, now those words of prophecy were weighed uh, by the teachers and those in authority and uh, that was an important part of creating unity in the church as people put forward words. But in any case 1 Corinthians 11 makes the case that women uh, were certainly encouraged to prophesy and so this can't mean silence. What it does mean uh, when Paul says a woman is to learn quietly with full submission, is, is it's pointing to a particular kind of way of learning quietly and submitting towards something. What is that? Well, Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. And so we have teaching and authority in, view, in prime view here. And that raises a bunch of questions. For example, uh, why is this a male-female thing? And and what is teaching and authority? Uh, let's start with the, the kind of latter question. Uh, what is teaching and authority? Uh, they are separate ideas uh, acting together in a sense here. Uh, and so when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority, there are two things in this prohibition that are worth exploring, but yet they're also acting together. Uh, now, let's unpack this a little bit. So, uh teaching, um, there's kind of a couple of, you know, degrees here to explore. So for in Colossians 3, Paul will encourage everyone to teach one another Uh, and so that's a broad sense of teaching and we're all encouraged to participate in that, men and women. Uh, And so there must be a specific sense of teaching that Paul has in view here. Uh, Secondly, uh, some women had at least some authority in the church and so this can't be a blanket kind of ban on any authority in the church uh, for instance, if we looked at Romans 16, which was the other reading that uh, Lauren read out to us, uh, we would find a description of uh, Phoebe, who is uh, a servant or a diaconos, or translated deacon, of the church in Centra, Centra. Uh Now, she would have had some kind of authority in that kind of role. Uh, and so, again, we see in view here there is a particular teaching and a particular authority that Paul has in mind. To make it a little bit more interesting, the word authority here is a funny kind of word. Paul uses authority in all kinds of ways in the New Testament, talking about the authority of God, uh, the authority of leadership, and so there's a word for that. The word that Paul uses here is the only time he uses that word authentain in all of the New Testament, which kind of makes it hard to work out uh, what, what is that word meaning. Uh, When we go to uh, understand a word, we will look at other uses of it and be able to discern the scope of that word. That's very hard to do if it's the only word. And why did Paul choose that particular word in this case when there was another word? Uh, There's a whole bunch of academic debate around this. Um, There's cases of that word being used negatively uh, and in a sort of militant sense, which would translate to, uh, you know, a, a, a woman is not allowed to teach or to usurp or domineer over a man. However... Uh, As this circulated, uh, there's more cases after this where it's used positively and so the debate rages on, it's really hard to work out. In any sense, the word he's using for teach here and the way that he's using it is positive, we should see the working together, so let's just leave it as it stands but it's just worth noting. And so, teaching and authority, these two particular ideas that Paul has in view, well it seems to me that these are in the domain of elders. Uh, We read in 1 Timothy 5, uh, chapter 5, that elders direct the affairs of the church uh, and their work is particularly in preaching and teaching. It would seem from passages like this that the role of the elder is reserved for men. Uh, Now, what's an elder? Uh, It's not when we've prayed for older people today, that's great, it's not just older people. Uh, It's, uh, you know, if you've come from a Presbyterian background or Baptist background, there will be an eldership, um, a plurality of elders who are governing the affairs of the church, and some of those elders will be teaching elders who preach and teach. Uh, In the Anglican system... Uh, I'm a presbyter, which is kind of our best kind of version of this uh, and it, rather than a plurality, you're stuck with just me. That's got its pros and its cons, but anyway. Um, and so, you know, Paul is advocating here for, um, for, for women submitting to uh, the teaching and authority uh, and we see that particularly uh, within the domain of eldership. Now, wh- why? why is this a male-female thing? kind of, it's very, our modern ears are very sensitive to this, why couldn't it just be an elder whoever it is and we all submit to the teaching and authority of that elder? Well Paul's rationale here uh, is rooted back to the creational account which is where we why we started there. For Adam was formed, formed first, he says, okay yep we've got that from history, then Eve. So there is kind of a unity but also an orderliness to that account. And Adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and transgressed." That sounds a little bit harsh at one level, sort of picking on Eve uh, for her transgression and now that's sort of unfolding in this prohibition. What's that about? Well, it's certainly pretty easy to overread this passage and we ought not to do that. Uh, The woman was tempted by Satan and Adam was silent and sinned eyes wide open. They are both to blame for the original, uh, original sin. In fact, in Romans 5, Paul actually has Adam particularly in view uh, for this issue. So what, what's he doing here with uh, Eve? Now he uses the word transgressed rather than say just sinned. Transgressed kind of has this idea of crossing a boundary, overstepping. I think Paul's using the Genesis 3 accounts to talk about here is an example of men and women not working together as God had intended. It's a disorderedness, whereas Adam was given the instruction to not eat from the tree of knowledge and life um, and and Eve was called to uh, listen to his leading in that, Satan kind of uh, starts from the bottom up and unravels the orderliness of uh, men and women created in God's image. Now Paul here is making the case that it was Adam who received and ought to have guarded the instruction, he abdicated And she didn't listen to his leadership. It's a problem. Uh, But rather than say, oh well, let's just start again and do our own thing, he's pointing us back to God's good intent in creating us this way. So again, starting positively, despite her transgression and noting that it was certainly not uncommon in that day to think of women as more gullible and weak, which is certainly not in the text, a woman was not excluded but drawn in to learn. And secondly, Paul is affirming the goodness of humanity, created male and female in their complementarity, their unity but difference. Now Paul is advocating for church leadership in the pattern of God's good creation and to guard God's good word. We've already noted that some of the things that Paul is saying must be guarded against is false teaching that includes abstaining from marriage. There would have been other competing ideas about how men and women were to relate to each other and the kind of rituals that were being practiced. So while in the text it's interesting to note that uh, you know the the worship of Artemis and the temple of Artemis being one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was in the center of Ephesus. Surely these ideas would have permeated through the culture of the day Uh, and you know there were plenty of rituals related to childbirth and an emphasis on female priestesses uh, all of that would have, would have permeated the thinking of the day and Paul is guarding against uh, both heresies in the church, uh, external ideas, competing ideas, to bring us back to God's intent and His goodness in creating us this way. Now, both of these internal and external evidences of false teaching and competing ideas might help us make sense of verse 15, which is really confusing, isn't it? But she will be saved through childbearing. Oh, my goodness. Um, Now, it can't possibly mean, surely, uh, saved in a salvation sense. We are saved uh, by faith through grace and not by works, okay? I would include childbearing as works, that's an incredible work Um, and surely women are not saved uh, because of that work. No, uh, I think uh, rather Paul is affirming women and womanhood and the particularity. What's the difference between a man and a woman? A woman is able to give birth. Not all do and that is totally fine but he's referring to womanhood, I think, in their distinctiveness, in their capacity to give birth and despite the curse being put on her that childbirth will be painful in Genesis 3, God will preserve women as they continue in faith, love and holiness and good sense he throws in there for good measure. Now, I can't pretend to have explained all of 1 Timothy 2, but I've hoped to, hoped to sort of wrestle with some of the things in play here. I'll actually summarize this text in a moment, but let me say a couple of things. Firstly, with all controversial texts, there are dangers in overreading, for example, that would suggest women are second rate in the church and should stay home and make babies. That is a terrible reading of this passage. And actually, we can't sustain such a poor view of women as we read scripture. Similarly, Passages on submission have been abused by abusers and are an abhorrent twisting of Scripture and a far cry from what we see in Jesus' ministry and the way that He loves women and the way He models sacrificial service. There is no room for abusing power. Rather, the Gospel speaks into power differences with grace and love. Now, before I get to summarizing 1 Timothy 2 let me actually just try and hold it also in tension with some other passages to help us better understand what might be happening here. So, uh, our modern ears might be so sensitive to some of the kind of confronting ways that Paul speaks that it's led many to just discard this passage altogether. I'm going to suggest that we need to do some harder work than just pulling it out. In fact, that very much undermines the Word of God uh, as He has given it to us. Uh, but, you know, there is some work to be done on thinking about what is bound by culture and maybe not as um, binding for us today and, uh, and what still applies. That's a work in hermeneutics, how we read Scripture and how we understand it and obey God. Uh, now, to pick on an even more complex passage, perhaps, but uh, a passage that might help us understand kind of uh, hermeneutics and how culture works, 1 Corinthians 11 Paul makes a statement about men and women in the church, similarly argues from creation uh, to then women covering their head while prophesying. Now let's not get too bogged into those details, it's a pretty hectic passage uh, but the cultural expression is actually worth noting. That is that men and women are made uh, differently uh, and to, uh, in complementary ways and that difference is to be expressed in different ways. In particularly in Corinth, that was expressed by women covering their head while prophesying. What's that about? Well, I don't see any women wearing headdresses at the moment. Uh, in fact, that kind of, I do recall that being a thing when I was smaller actually in some of the churches that I was in. But anyway, uh, Paul writes in that passage explicitly, we have no other custom nor do the churches of God. So in that case, he's talking about the particular expression of being male and female in, in the church, in the house of God, uh, was, was a custom and it's kind of like, look around, everyone's doing the same thing. This is, this is a thing that we are doing. Now, I guess someone broke rank here and it's not true anymore, we don't do this practice anymore and that's okay, I think. As we understand the creational account and that there really is kind of a complementarity to male and female, that's going to be expressed differently in different cultures. We don't practice that anymore. So, I hope you can see, kind of, when we we look for for clues in the text to see uh, if it's a culturally bound command or if it's a broader command, we have to do the hard work there. Sometimes it's really hard to do this. We certainly can't let culture rewrite Scripture, that is, this doesn't make sense to our modern ears anymore, therefore we don't listen to it. No, we have to let Scripture interpret culture, that we might follow God and live for Him, and yet there are some times uh, where Paul makes it obvious that it was a cultural expression of the time. This is why I don't think we can throw 1 Timothy 2 out wholesale. There's nothing here in the text, even though it's hard to hear, that it leads us to go, well that was just a thing for the Ephesians. He grounds his teaching in the creational account and really does call uh, men and women to respond in different ways. Now, uh, I guess as we think about this, uh, we must hold it in tension with other passages also. Uh, like, for example, men and women prophesying in church. As we think about uh, preaching and teaching and prophesying and exhortation, what are the kind of practices uh, over time and, and what does it even mean for, for uh, Paul to be the apostolic teacher as opposed to now having the authoritative text in front of us? Now, these are some of the questions I'll let stand as we come back to in terms of expressing uh, different views on this. But let us at least note that Romans 16, for example, which is another passage that we had read out to us, uh, has a rich diversity of men and women uh, listed as contributors and, and, uh, you know, prominent contributors to the life of the church. And this certainly helps guard against us running too far with 1 Timothy 2. So, for example, if 1 Timothy 2 seems to uh, continue the idea of patriarchy, then what what would you expect uh, Paul to say at the end of Romans 16? He would say, thank you to all these men who have done great things for the contribution of the Church. No, he lists not just wives of men, but he lists 10 separate women in a list of 29 people as uh, prominent in their contribution to the life of the Church. It's a wonderful celebration of the complementarity and of men and women being co-workers in the church. So again, that, that just helps kind of frame 1 Timothy 2 for us, lest we go too far with it. Now, as a particularly interesting note uh, that I found, that I'll just share with you, on Phoebe, for example... Uh, this, is, this is drawn on a couple of inferences, so you've got to take it with a grain of salt. But most commentators, even conservative ones, acknowledge that she's most likely the letter carrier as Paul encourages her to be welcomed uh, in those opening verses of chapter 16. Now it's interesting to imagine that as, uh, as Paul writes this, uh, this epic kind of doctrine letter uh, of Romans to the church in Rome, and as, as Phoebe would carry that perhaps, if, um, as, that church, as that letter is read out, and as there was questions, it's a tough kind of letter, right? You know, what, what is the righteousness of God? Who might they have asked? Well, if Phoebe was the letter carrier representing Paul, they would have, would have asked her, surely. Now, again, there's a few inferences there, but I don't think it's such a long bow uh, to, to sort of appreciate that uh, Phoebe might have expounded Romans to help uh, the Roman church understand the letter of Romans. Let me try and bring some of these things together. So, men and women are called to be complementary co-workers in the kingdom. In their unity, there are differences. Women having capacity to bear children has real impact and this was certainly more significant in ancient times. If they continue in faith, the effect of the curse was not ultimate and they, with, women, with men, are drawn into the kingdom. On top of that, Paul really does make a case for the orderliness of humanity in man being created first and the gospel shows us the grace dynamic to deepen unity across difference and in particular the model of Jesus' sacrificial service. There remains, I believe, a call upon qualified men in the eldership role that by virtue of it being a role for qualified men to demonstrate godly leadership, women are called to submit to. This expression of complementarity is witnessed in the early church with men and women serving in a variety of prominent roles in the church. That's a lot to try and hold together, a lot of nuances, a lot of details. I will share this with the church more broadly in weeks to come. This the next part is thinking about how we might express these things as we look at Paul's teaching on these matters. And I've called this generous complementarianism, Uh, there's a range of possibilities here, and I want us to approach them generously listening to each other. As I said, we have a wide range of experiences and expressions that people have uh, held to uh, in this church, and it's a good thing for us to, Bibles, open, have open conversations, generous conversations with each other. Let me walk you through three applications uh, that, that I feel comfortable with actually, it's probably important for you to know that, as well as I'll share a couple of things uh, maybe where I'm not comfortable to go. So, firstly, uh, men ought to do all the preaching and teaching. This, this, past, this position claims the most straightforward interpretation of 1 Timothy 2. Uh, men teach, well, qualified men teach, and women are to quietly submit to that. Now the best expression of this does this in an ecosystem of men and women working together seeking to celebrate the unity and complementarity of men and women, noting that there is difference between men and women, expressed in different roles, particularly in the eldership role and in preaching. It's not that simple all the way down. So, for example, uh, you know, uh, there are churches that have held too firmly to this and end up sort of with lines that if anything looks like teaching, it's only the role for a man and then what happens in the church is it becomes very male dominated and so you look at sort of like what would be the equivalent of Romans 16 and you end up with a bunch of men. That's probably not the kind of picture that Paul had in mind. Uh, but our church is not like that. I think when I when I read Romans 16 I can think of many men and women in the life of tact that I am thankful for. But there's still kinds of questions to ask and these are questions that have been uh, asked and and mostly resolved in this church, can a woman teach children, lead a growth group discussion, lead corporate worship? As you ask these questions and kind of wrestle with their application, you come to realise that you're actually making decisions about how you're applying 1 Timothy 2 in different contexts, in a modern context as it were, and you realise that actually this is more complicated than a simple uh, face reading. Now you can read more on this view from John Piper. Uh, Claire Smith's written a good book um, called God's Good Design. Most of the Moore College faculty will subscribe to this view and it's been the practice mostly uh, in this church for the last couple of decades. Questions to wrestle with in this view. I'm going to ask critical questions of each view. Can we simplify uh, the instructions about teaching and authority to preaching? Now in this view, men ought to do all the preaching. The word preaching is not used in 1 Timothy 2. Uh, So there's a conflation of kind of understanding teaching and authority as preaching. Now as I said, it makes sense that elders who hold the teaching and authoritative role in the church express that predominantly through the pulpit, that's how they lead the church and so uh, they would express that in preaching. But my question is, does that exhaust all preaching possibilities? And how does this view maintain a unity... Of men and women without overemphasising order and hierarchy. Uh, there's growing work being done in this space, which is great to see. I'm thankful for more colleges' work here uh, and for the Priscilla and Aquila Centre, um, but there is a lag here. There are low, much lower numbers of women in vocational ministry simply because there isn't enough opportunity for women to lead. Now, we don't want to let pragmatics drive orthodoxy, but that's an observation that's worth querying. The second expression here is a co-preaching model. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila Centre are exploring uh, variations of this. I think it's a good thing to explore. Uh, This view is part of exploring how to maintain the teaching authority role while also creating more space for the female voice. As we map across Paul's instruction of women prophesying, for example, uh, and that men are to be in the teacher elder role, there could be space for pre-prepared words of encouragement Uh, for the congregation of men and women that have been weighed by the elder. Uh, This could look like a variety of things. A a woman sharing how an aspect of the teaching has been experienced or exploring how it could be and that would be an encouragement for men and women to hear. It could be a public dialogue between the teaching elder and a woman about a passage. And again, that would be beneficial to hear a, 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 a sort of a duality of voice as we explore how to live in God's world as men and women and understand each other. Questions for this view? What does it mean to kind of try and divvy up you know aspects to be uh, preached by women and the teaching of a male elder? And actually is this view substantially different to the next? The next expression would be occasional women preaching or women occasionally preaching, if I did English, good. This view is in many ways a logical extension of the previous, it seeks to discern rather than assume the relationship between teaching and the modern practice of preaching. Uh, This view upholds that the quietness and learning of women is with respect to the teaching elder role who exercises their teaching authority over the church while creating space for a variety of expressions within their leadership. It acknowledges, in this view, a distance between Paul's role as a herald of the truth where there was no authoritative scriptures uh, to appeal to, and our context. In the early church, it was necessary to lean on the church leadership structures more significantly. Uh, In this day and age, there is still a need for there to be leadership and those that govern the affairs of this church, but those power structures are different and need more nuance. For example, if prophesying is giving spiritual words to a congregation that are weighed according to scripture and by the elder, is there space within the authoritative teaching role of the elder for a woman to preach? Now, why have I said occasional here? Because I acknowledge that the teaching elder role isn't just a role on an org chart. Uh, It's a shepherding role in relationships and so ought to be expressed by leading the church through the pulpit regularly. I already do most of the preaching for this reason." Those who hold this view are John Stott, J.I. Packer, John Dixon, uh, Craig Blomberg, the New Testament scholar, and actually I didn't realize until recently it was the practice here in this church only 30 years ago. Questions for this view, does this view dilute the authoritative teaching role and blur boundaries unhelpfully? For example, John Piper would say that a teaching elder can't delegate A male role to a woman. It's a bit controversial but that's kind of what he says to this. As I've said, I'm comfortable with all three of these but we need to work out as a church what is good for us and there's a way of loving each other and exploring this together that we need to do in time. As I said, I could be wrong on these. Uh, There is kind of a a fourth expression and perhaps further down the line uh, that might kind of come under the umbrella of egalitarianism. So I've used the word complementarianism and complementarity a lot. That is a bucket that describes men and women created equal and different. Egalitarianism kind of draws on passages like Galatians 3.28 that said there is no difference between men and women. But Paul is largely talking uh, about the promise made to Abraham and our access uh, to the kingdom of God, of which there is no difference. We all have access, equal access to that. But it's a different thing to then claim from that, how to sort of dissolve the many teachings in Scripture about men and women being equal and different. Now, I'm not comfortable with some of those positions. Uh, that would elevate um, women being able to be priesthood and lead churches. I think that is an overreach from what we're reading in 1 Timothy 2. But again, there's kind of quite significant dialogue, debate and discussion about these matters. So, some meta-observations as I've worked through this. There is a tension in applying these scriptures, trying to maintain Paul's instruction while not becoming pharisaical on what men and women can't do. Uh, And have we, thinking broadly about the church, become so pulpit-centric in our services that we've minimised spaces to better express our unity as men and women? Where to from here? Generous conversations. As I said, I'm not leading a, a particular process after this. In fact, I've got synod for two weeks and then I'm on holidays for two weeks, so I'm doing the runner. Um, But uh, I guess what I'll do is is I will take this talk, of which there is three and a half thousand words, uh, I'll take the questions that have been uh, asked today and will probably come in over the next couple of days and I'll provide some answers to those and then spread that widely so that we might have mature, Bible-open conversations uh, as a church. And I'm just going to let that play as it stands and we might pick it up again next year. I'm not in a particular anxious rush about these things. I want to do this well and listen to each other. I've already engaged staff, growth group leaders and parish council and already it's not clear there's any consensus on these matters and that's okay. Um, For some of you, you've come from churches with women preaching regularly. I don't want you to feel judged if that's your experience but drawn into the conversation. I want to hear how you understood that, how you experienced it. Uh, Let us hear from you. Um, For some of you, the idea of women taking any pulpit role, even under the teaching authority of myself as the elder, raises some significant questions. Let's hear those and with Bibles open, talk about it. This is a secondary issue. Uh, Let's not get too distracted uh, by discussing these things as we keep what is important and primary in focus. The Lord Jesus, Saviour of all, the need to seek many coming to know Him in our area and growing to be more like Him let's keep on that. But also this is kind of, uh, you know, being secondary, is still part of how we organise ourselves as a church and so it does, it is worthy of reflecting on and opening some discussion on. I'm going to open up some Q&A in a moment, Um, I'm going to put up a QR code, it's the same that's on your um, chair, I'll put on uh, kind of some elevator music for 60 seconds to let you try and synthesise all that information uh, and then I'll have a crack at answering some of your questions. For now, let me pray, uh, and then uh, I'll give you some time to put through some questions. All right. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that as we, as we digest some of these harder things, uh, thank you that we can, we can rest in your goodness, that by faith in the Lord Jesus, we are called sons and daughters of you, Father. What a privilege that is. And just as disciples uh, walked alongside Jesus, asking questions, being confused sometimes, we thank you for the way Jesus modelled his love for them and the way he taught them. And we thank you that with your word being so accessible, that you would grow us and teach us and help us to explore these things, that we would honour you uh, and honour each other, uh, men and women, complementary co-workers in your kingdom. Amen.